Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Director of IBM Digital Assets and CTO of Portal. Morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin, a program traditionally wrapped around the huge industry, social environment and activities happening outside the Bitcoin world. Naturally, Bitcoin plays a major role in what we do, but this is about really community opportunities, investment. And today, we're really talking about community. We're really talking about technology that brings communities together. So firstly, may I introduce, of course, my good friend and colleague, um, Nitin Gower, who's our co-host always on this show. Good morning, Nitin. Hey, Derek. Good morning. Uh, hope all's good. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be one of my favorite uh, episodes that we've had this year so far. So Terrific. Looking forward to talking to Matt. My other friend and colleague, Matthew Spoke. (laughs) And Matthew sits on the investment committee of Portal um, Asset Management also. So today, you've actually got part of our team getting together. So for those listening, when we do get together, this is not a dissimilar conversation that we have, uh, which is an opportunity to think about ideas, et cetera. But Matt also is the CEO of Moves. And Moves is a fascinating project that very much engages this technology to create a social environment and to engage that and to monetize that for its users. But Matt, over to you to talk about what Moves is about. Yeah, thanks, Derek. And it's good to be here. I mean, uh, we've obviously talked in lots of contexts, but it's I'm a first time, uh, first time participant in the podcast. So really excited to be here. Um, yeah, Moves is Moves is born out of you know, just in terms of quick background, I, I worked in the cryptocurrency industry very directly as an entrepreneur for about five years. Um, and, and I think what, what drew me to the industry had a lot to do with sort of the principles and philosophies of what the technology could enable. Um, and I, I think a lot of people call it a lot of different things, but what really got me excited is this idea of sort of democratization of ownership um, and how that can be applied to create really interesting products and really interesting sort of new experiences for consumers. Where, where I always found that, you know, the, the crypto industry on its own was still in its infancy is that often the consumers in the crypto industry were sort of the native crypto early adopters, enthusiasts, you know, participants that had spent a lot of time sort of familiarizing themselves with this technology. We hadn't yet seen this chasm bridged where a normal everyday consumer uh, could benefit from some of the promise of crypto, right? And and in Mm. this context, the promise of sort of democratized ownership. So a couple of years ago, I sought uh, out to to build a new company uh, focused on, call it a a non-crypto or real world problem. Uh, This company is called Moves. Uh, We're based in Canada. Moves is what, what I like to call a digital credit union for the gig economy. And so uh, we're, we operate exclusively in the U.S. today. I mean, obviously, we've got our eyes on, on sort of the larger global market. In the gig economy, obviously, we define, you know, lots of various definitions. But in our context, people who earn a living driving for Uber, delivering food for DoorDash, um, d- doing Instacart groceries, you know, there are a number of these apps that, that provide ver- variety of services for consumers. And powering these apps are millions and millions of people who now earn a primary living as gig workers. They don't have a job. They're not employed. Mm-hmm. 
they, mm. they piece together their living from these, these various apps. So, so for one, we're building, as you might, as the name implies, a, a credit union, we're building a suite of financial services for these people. We are a, mm. a bank account. We are a cash advance product. We, we provide them insights into their earnings. Um, mm. And, you know, there's more coming down that, that path. Um, but the other sort of nuance and why I, I like to use the term credit union is that we're looking for a model that effectively allows us to share ownership with our users. And, and we sort of think of ownership, I guess, in, from at two layers. So one is ownership in the business that we're building. And this is sort of a big undertaking around how we think about the future roadmap of our, of our product and our business, probably something that will heavily involve tokens in, the, in its design. Uh, the other layer of ownership is a little more traditional and it's the fact that these people earn their living working for companies like Uber and DoorDash and Lyft, many of which are public companies and none of whom own stock in the companies that they work for. And so yes, we're actually, yes. we're sort of empowering gig workers to accumulate stock um, in the companies that they work for. So we, we give them access to free rewarded stock, almost like a, like a reward program, a points program. But instead of getting points, you get a fractional share of Uber. You get a fractional share of Lyft for the work that you do. Um, and we're really trying to demonstrate that this will change the behavior of this demographic and, and sort of change the economics of the gig economy. So uh, that's where we're heading. That's fantastic. I mean, you, you are talking about engaging community in their community. That's the powerful thing about it. Rather than just feel like you're a subservient servant to Uber. Um, and, and I've chatted to lots of Uber drivers. Who hasn't? You get in an Uber car, what do you do? Um, and, and, you know, I, I can't help but ask where, how their business model is going, what are they earning for the week? You know, is, is this progressing well for them? Um, and without a doubt, they all complain about the level of fees that they're, that they're getting, that Uber yeah. is taking from, which is about, I think, about 25% um, of, of their taking by memory. You'll know much better than me. Um, and so although they're part of that organisation, I don't sense they're part of that community. Do you yeah, think Moves will be able to build on that? I, I think, I mean, that's the hope. I mean, you know, there, there's um, there a lot of smarter people than I, particularly in the venture capital space that sort of look at this, this, the, this pattern that emerges in companies, particularly marketplace companies. You know, there, there's, there's two sort of spectrums that change over the life of a business when you're building a marketplace startup. One is uh, what they, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you start off cooperating. You say, I need to attract users to my, my market. I need to give them value. I need to demonstrate to them that uh, you know, they're going to get more out of this equation than they're giving. And so it's a, it's a game of cooperation. And I think what happens over the life of a business is that cooperation starts to bleed into competition. All of a sudden, Uber's bottom line is fed by margins it's taking from its drivers, right? So there's a yes. natural tension and there's a natural competition in that market that leads to a different set of dynamics than the original days of Uber when you were being sort of bribed into the market with bonuses and sign-up yes. fees and all these things, right? And, and then the other, the other sort of way to think about that is you start by attracting users and then you eventually extract from your users. You say, well, how can I bring users into my market so that they can contribute value? And then how can I extract as much value as I can out of these? Yes. And it's not because these companies are malicious. I mean, I've never looked at Uber and said, this is an evil company. It's just, this is what's demanded of privately funded venture capital backed corporations. Yes. You know, you, yes. you start off dumping money into growing your business. You have to get network effects. You have to distribute your, your technology and your product. 
eventually your VCs look at you and say, hey, when are you going to start monetizing? When are you going to start profiting on the service that you've built? Yeah. And then all of a sudden you got to start layering these, these fees and these revenue models. And, and, uh, and it naturally leads to this outcome where there's, there's a hostility that evolves between the participants in the market and the operator of the market, right? And, and that's what we're seeing with companies like Uber. And I think tokens are an interesting tool to sort of rethink the design of these things. Right. So, so Matt, I've followed you, as you know, since Roblox days, which is back in the day, or, or Rubik's days, rather, when you were with Deloitte, and then you moved to Aeon Foundation, which is, you know, building this whole crypto ecosystem for interoperability, and now you're you know, building moves. And as you mentioned, that you're trying to focus on democratizing ownership, going to moves, and the whole element was, in thematic sense, is similar. You're trying to empower uh, in this case, gig workers, but essentially you're trying to empower the creators, people who bring their own skill set to that ecosystem. Um, and someday, I, I promise you, I'll work for you because I think in both sense, uh, there are amazing elements in which you've sort of translated what you have working on Aeon to say, I will flip this aside. And while I'm not drinking the decentralization Kool-Aid, I should still provide similar services. And so while the theme is similar in the vein of empowering the creator economy, which is self-employed folks in this case, uh, we oftentimes talk about the fact that, you know, back in the day, we talked about financial inclusion. Lately, we've been talking about digital inclusion. And I believe that digital inclusion is a prerequisite now for financial inclusion, because largely whether we look into the crypto space or we look into digital finance space, uh, digitization becomes a main entry point. I'd just love to get your perspective that while you describe the limited earning potential uh, in this case that let's say Uber driver or a food delivery entity and all the gig workers have because there's only so much market, there's only so much margins with this. Is there an avenue that if you were to bring these set of financial services, do they have avenue to sort of exponentially grow their 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 well-being with financial health? If that, if that makes yeah, sense. I mean, I, I think I understand your question. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to promise that by by signing up for moves, gig workers are going to start earning five times as much or ten times as much. But I think there's, you know, there there's there's opportunity in the equation as it exists today um, to improve their financial standing and improve their financial well beings. I mean, a simple example that is not super well understood: um, Uber drivers. And I'll use Uber as an example a lot, just because it's sort of, I, I call them the Kleenex of the category. You know, they're, they're, they, they sort of define the, the category. Uber drivers are not employed by Uber. And, mm. and there's, there's a reason that that's relevant. I mean, the, the, there's legal battles happening now across the world in various jurisdictions around this very question. Are you independent contractors or are you employees? And the reason that it's important is because they are not employees of Uber, Uber is not uh, positioned to effectively think of them as a, as a workforce or an employee base. They're not able to go out and negotiate, you know, discount pricing on health insurance. They're not able to give them access uh, to the types of benefits they might get as employees. And if they were to, they would cement this employment relationship and it would, it would really be detrimental to Uber's business model. Uber built their business model on this idea that on a whim, at any moment of the day, you can turn on the app, earn a living. Uh, you can turn off the app and stop earning a living. And you can go to Lyft and you can go to DoorDash and you can be on multiple apps at the same time. And so there's, there's a degree of flexibility by design and there's a degree of independence by design in these products. Um, but the trade-off means that every single gig worker out there is effectively isolated. They're on their own. There is nobody looking at them as an economy of scale, you know, to say, hey, what if I brought them all together? What if I coordinated them as a single uh, sort of consumer base, a single purchasing power? Um, and, and because the average gig worker, I mean, for, your, for context, our average customer is on 2.3 apps a week. 
meaning somewhere between two and three apps on average. So a, a gig worker is very unlikely only driving for Uber. They're likely driving for Uber and for Lyft and for Instacart and for DoorDash. And so that means that no one of these companies is responsible for, you know, the, the, the litany of things that an employer might be responsible for in their employees' lives, right? So that means that they're sort of left in this, they fall in between the cracks. There's, there's nobody looking out for their interests. Uh, there's no labor unions in this space sort of advocating or collective bargaining or anything like that. And so we sort of looked at this and say, hey, there's, this is the largest single workforce in the U.S. today, probably in most wow. countries today. If you pull them together wow. and say this yeah. is a group. Um, you know, in the U.S., by some estimates, we're talking 57 million people that earn a living in the gig economy. Um, and, you know, broadly defined, that would include people doing freelance work on Upwork and things like that. But yes. definitely yeah. tens of millions in the category that I'm looking at, which is food delivery, rideshare, grocery delivery. And nobody has pulled them together and said, hey, we're going to organize you as a single cohesive group so that I can do things like, you know, simple side-by-side -side comparison of an employee purchasing health insurance and an Uber driver purchasing health insurance at the same income level. The Uber driver is going to spend two to three times more on their health insurance premiums. Mm -hmm. And so all of these things sort of like stack up against them, right? They're, they're just looking to make a living and the tools they have at their disposal are really limited. So, you know, that's the starting point. I think if we can pull them together, we can get them better pricing. We can get them access. You know, we can treat them like a serviceable customer segment. Most of the banks out there are looking at gig workers saying, this is not a customer I want. It's a low margin, low income customer, yeah. high risk, yeah. you know, et cetera. And we're just trying to bridge that gap to start. So is it fair to then say, uh, Matt, that you're sort, of, you're sort of one-stop service for all group finance, group health. So there's been initiatives now in the US with GoodRx, for example, which is trying to address the healthcare, sort of the same VCs are investing in bringing that healthcare, which is a massive problem in the US, as you know. And then you have credit unions and then you have you know, healthcare you know, workers. Is it then fair to say that you're sort of giving the gig workers an option to checkbox whether they want car insurance, health insurance, 401k, or some sort of a retirement saving yeah. plan. Health, you know, is that the is that the long term? Yeah, I mean I, that, that's the ambition. I, I won't pretend that we offer all of that today. I mean, today it's a relatively simple product. Uh, so, so what we do offer today, we offer a full service sort of like checking account and debit card to earn your your pay. And so, you know, one thing we found really simply put is that gig workers that are working on more than one app more often than not have more than one bank account. They have an Uber branded debit card, a Lyft branded debit card, a DoorDash branded debit card. They're having their earnings deposited into multiple accounts and they just have to move their money around frequently. So we said, hey, why don't we replace that with a single account? Within that account, we give you access to future earnings uh, through like a cash advance mechanism. If we have, if we see a pattern of earnings, we will let you borrow next week's earnings today. If you need to repair your car, if you know your bicycle gets stolen, something is stopping you from getting back on the road and earnings. So you have sort of this almost safety net by having a pre-approved um cash advance amount that says, hey, anytime you need it, click here, $500 topped up in your account or $1,000 topped up in your account. Um, and then the, the, the sort of final thing that we've built more recently is our reward program where we're, uh, we're, we're giving fractional stock um, in companies that are gig economy companies to the, the workers that they're working, that are working for them. So uh, we started with Uber stock. We're now rolling out Lyft, Grubhub, DoorDash, Target, and Amazon, uh, because Target and Amazon also have gig services uh, as part of their delivery engine. So, um, and so that's now a big part of the draw into the product is to become eligible for this, like this sort of free stock program. And what do these large listed wow, companies cool. think of that? Um, so some of them are aware of what we're doing. Some of them are not. I mean, mm -hmm. so, 
you know, the other analogy that I like to use just to give you a sense, I mean, I think we, we exist somewhere between being a bank and being a labor union. And I, and I think the, the mm. labor union analogy and, and sort of the other way to think about it might be a consumer cooperative or a labor cooperative, mm. right? Like yes. we are not a union legally speaking, but we are trying to fill a vacuum of, of advocacy and representation and voice for our users. Our users all come from the same walk of life. They all do the same thing for a living. They all have similar challenges and obstacles. And so instead of you know, advocating for a union to come into the gig economy, we've said, well, what if we could give shares to every one of our members and then organize them as a voting shareholder base so that we can do things like submit shareholder proposals to these public companies. And we actually yes. just went through this. We submitted a shareholder Sweet. proposal to Uber over the last couple of months. And Uber, we engaged in a conversation with us because they're forced to look at these things. And we met all of the SEC's guidelines on how to submit. And it forces them to have a conversation about the issue of concern that we're bringing to the table. Um, often these things get withdrawn, but in the process of withdrawing the proposal, Uber has agreed to do certain things. They've agreed to compromise on certain, on certain items. And so we're going to use that as a tool. I mean, mm -hmm. as the user base grows and as the value of the shares that we represent sure. sort of grow, we become this like indirect channel for you to apply your shareholder rights uh, as a, a stakeholder at Uber. That's brilliant. So, so does that mean, for example, you're sort of not only fighting for your community, community of folks who are Uber drivers and stockholders, but also for all of it, all the Uber drivers in, in essence, right? Because any proposal yeah, I mean, that, you, that you were to... Yeah, the, the proposal, I'll give you a sense. The proposal that we submitted to Uber um, was asking that, that Uber's shareholders at the upcoming AGM vote to add to their board of directors a nomination criteria that would require that one of their directors have previously worked as a gig worker in the gig economy. Um, and it was, you know, we knew that it was a little bit intentionally sort of contentious and difficult, <laughs> but what, the point we were trying to make is that nobody that governs your business understands the livelihoods of gig workers and nobody Absolutely. understands sort of the pain points that they deal with. And that's leading you to making decisions that are sort of like missing that context. Um, and so, you know, we ended up negotiating with Uber to, to ultimately withdraw the proposal, but now they've, they've agreed that on a, on a rolling basis at their board meeting, there's a standing item on their board agenda to talk about gig worker concerns and rights and protections. And so, you know, we've for, effectively forced that to be an agenda item at, at their board meeting. Um, and so th those are the types of things. And that would be beneficial to all gig workers, not yes. just our members, right? So, And Matt, what's extraordinary about the statement you just made then is that it's just obvious why wouldn't there be such a conversation? Because your entire resource base, in fact, is your gig workers. And, and it's not yeah. on the agenda. It's, it's fascinating how companies <laughs> can overlook these things. It's kind of and perversely this is strange. Where, like, I mean, you could probably tell <laughs> people, people who know that I come from the crypto space, they can see what we're building and they can understand yeah. where the where the inspiration came from, right? Like the inspiration yeah, yeah, that's exactly is that's, like DAOs and, and token yes. ownership and and, and I think like, ultimately, I think these things sort of like, there's a, there's a meeting between these two worlds, a sort of web two, web three collision. The reality though, is that like, there was two ways to approach this market. And the way that we chose to approach it is that there is an existing distributed network effect with millions and millions of people working in it called the gig economy. Um, to interact with the ownership layer of the gig economy is to interact with stock, it's to interact with public companies, yeah. it's to interact with sort of like the old world of financial instruments. Yes. yes. Um, but I think what we what we hope to do is that we'll start to bring in more and more of these concepts of like, you know, how do we how do we pull our users the way a DAO might ask for a vote yes. token holders and ask yeah. to 
prioritize issues and, and help us make decisions on governance and things of that nature. So, so I was wondering, you know, I because, think, you know, uh, you, sorry, mate, go on. You, go you asked, Newton. Yeah. So the so one thing you said, you know, that we are, you're building community and I think that everything that we do in crypto world, and that's the history that you bring, you're building a community, you're ensuring that there's enough voting rights. Uh, have you have you sort of taken the next step, which is obviously what many companies are looking into saying, can this be a DAO? Can this be digitized? Even though mm. I think it's a little far reached because you're really trying to sound this on the ground reality of, of challenges of these gig workers who may not have the same uh, acumen or even knowledge to operate a DAO and do voting system and you're sort of operating on their behalf. But more importantly, when you begin to offer things like fractionalized stock and other financial services, is their roadmap to give them access to crypto or give them access to um, give them access to fractionalized stock, which or fractional synthetic stocks. What are you using for those things? Because uh, I think if you look at India, we did one of the, uh, the session, 79 million wallets came from tier three cities that no one's heard of because there's a hope that they gives them access to the financial inclusion, gives them access to secondary incomes, which is quite prevalent in the crypto space. Is there that on the roadmap or is there thought behind that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, start like, Exposure to crypto broadly is not something that we've talked about. There's a few areas that that I'm I'm looking at in the medium term. Let's say so. One is, um, I think there is a, a trend, and we will probably participate in this trend of Web two fintech consumer fintech companies starting to plug into Web three yields. Right. So if you look at sort of the USDC USDT markets, uh, you know the Aves and the Compounds, etc. Uh, there is a better than you know prime rate interest that you can generate on savings or dollars sort of deposited, and so mm. for any dollar sitting in account right now with us, we're effectively earning zero for our users. Current is a really large uh, consumer fintech company in the U.S. with maybe ten or so million users. They just announced a four percent yield product. That four percent yield product is is a crypto yield being passed on to a non-crypto customer, right? So the customer mm-hmm. on the on the front end of that product is not holding or touching USDT or USDC, just the dollars that are sitting in their accounts, you know, under a certain set of rules and, and, and parameters are being in the back end converted into a stable coin and put into a yield generating market uh, so that they can earn something, right? So I think there's going to be some paths like that where we take advantage of the markets that have been created in crypto. The other area that I think is is sort of nearer to my heart is is actually thinking about tokenizing a, a, the the components of our business that I think mimic sort of the the, the co-op, right? The um, so what does it mean to be a member of Moves, and do you do you get a membership token, and does that token give you rights, and do you you know can you accumulate more tokens if you participate, or when you refer a friend, or you you know when you do things of that nature. Um, and that's where I would sort of draw the analogy to, you know, a consumer cooperative, like you shop at a consumer co-op and you're a member and an owner of that co-op. And, um, and so I, I'd like to sort of investigate that a little bit further. So your, your membership and ownership in moves is represented in some form of token. And how do you do the synthetic stocks? So none of that is on us. I mean, like the, the, the consumer fintech uh, stack today is effectively you're working with licensed third parties that offer this infrastructure through an API, right? So Mm. both on the banking side, as well as on the brokerage side, because when you're a moves account holder, you are effectively opening both a bank account and a brokerage account at the same time. Uh, The bank account is a banking partner that we work with out of Virginia called Blue Ridge Bank. Uh, So it's it's a moves user experience. Everything about the account is moves as as, as far as our customer is concerned. But the FDIC insurance and the, the licensing and the, the charter is all held by this partner bank that we have. 
Uh, and then similarly on the brokerage side, we work with a third-party brokerage and they provide the capability to do fractional stock. So we can we can do as little as a dollar of stock in any company. And so when we're funding a reward, and so the rewards in our product, effectively we surface a task to our users to say, hey, and a task could be, hey, you've got this week, if you earn more than $400 on Uber, uh, you'll earn $10 in Uber stock, you know? So, and then you sort of have a progress bar that shows how many dollars you earned on Uber this week. And then if you complete the task, you get the stock. We put it into your brokerage account effectively. So, so it really is a confluence, isn't it? Because, you know, you've been immersed in the world of digital assets and, and DAOs and, and communities, and no doubt you've been intrigued by non-fungible tokens and the communities they generate. You are absolutely creating all around this area. And so as you're creating this interface with traditional finance and traditional workers, or not traditional, recently gig workers, um, you must be thinking then, you know, how is it that we can start, um, we can start really empowering them into, a, into a, a world where they can have a voting right, they can have a position, they can, they can have some might to get to their in, you know, health insurance and they can build their bank accounts. And you're doing part of that now. What do you think it would look like if it's digitized or as it's heading towards that. Is it, is it a DAO? Um, do you think that's how it might yeah, be or is it a utility token are, of just some traditional structure? What do you think? I mean, I think, I think what, what I'm learning working sort of outside of Web3 is that a lot of the practical applications are going to have to, are going to have to exist sort of in the hybrid um, sort of middle mm. ground, right? Because mm -hmm. I think purely a DAO, you know, my business requires a legal structure, a license, mm -hmm. uh, a regulatory framework. Uh, and so I can't, it can't not exist. You know, it needs to exist yes. legally. It needs to exist sort of tangibly. Uh, I have, I have partner companies that are very traditional, right? They need to interact with a legal entity on the other side. So I think the, you know, the purity of a DAO really only exists in my mind when the entire sort of like use case exists in that sort of digital ecosystem. But when you're touching the real world, when you're touching people's bank accounts, when you're touching sort of like a, a paycheck, then there's a bridge that needs to be built towards like the traditional financial infrastructure that people rely on to pay their bills, to buy their groceries, to fill up their, their car with gas. And so that's where, you know, the banking products, et cetera, need to come in. Um, I think ultimately what I'd like to do is find how that legal structure is married to these sort of digital, the, the these sort of like digital uh, uh, designs that we've we've seen popularized in the crypto space. So simple example that that we've done a little bit of, of sort of high level homework on is whether or not a legal co-op structure um, is a, a, a relevant framework on top of which you can sort of build a DAO, right? So uh, if I build a DAO on top of a co-op and then I sort of build the legal mechanisms to, to, to sort of represent the member units of a co-op through the token of a DAO. I build the governance and voting rules of that co-op into the DAO's governance and voting rules. And then ultimately, if you are holding a token of the DAO, you're effectively holding membership units in the, in the co-op. I mean, there are a few examples of this in the crypto space. I think the most like popular and well-known that's been around for a number of years at this point is a company called uh, um, Nexus Mutual out of the UK. Mm. Uh, Nexus Mutual uh, is a is a mutual, as the name implies. It's an insurance product. It is a legally incorporated mutual. You need to be a member of the mutual to own their token. Their token represents that ownership, um, and it allows you access to the service of the mutual, the insurance service. Right. So I think there's there's some lessons learned from products like that that we're going to bridge over, um, and then ultimately I, I think there's going to be some more creative stuff that we can do. And, and you know, the real long-term aspiration is that we're sort of Trojan horsing ourselves into the gig economy. And like, 
if I were, you know, really, really long-term 10 years out, imagining what our existence in the gig economy could do to change the dynamics, I envision us being sort of like the co-op of all gig workers, right? So, yes. you know, best analogy. And it's all gig workers worldwide too. That's the yeah, thing and, and, because the yeah, gig economy is absolutely global, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think the power dynamics change at that point, because if you, if you start to pull all these gig workers together, all of a sudden they have the ability to decide which platform wins and which platform loses because they can say, well, we're not going to give our labor to Uber. Uber's not treating us well. We're going to go give our labor to Lyft. We're going to go. go mm. And this, you know, this is a little bit of like the tactics that once organized and once pulled together, I think you have a lot more power in the sort of supply, supply and demand dynamics of the gig economy. And that might lead to things as interesting as Uber being required to buy moves tokens to take on labor from the moves co-op, right? You want to, you want our people to work for you. You've got to contribute into the ecosystem that powers their economics. And that could include this token design and this sort of token economy that we create. And so, I mean, like we've got a lot of steps between now and then, cause we're really just starting with, you know, what are the, the core financial problems that we need to solve that are really, really like, you know, basic banking and insurance and health and health benefits yes, and things yes. of that nature. But Hey Matt, so, so what's, I think, uh, go ahead. What's, sorry. Yeah, sorry, sorry, well, what's interesting is what you're doing is you is that so often we see people creating a, a DAO solution, creating a digital asset solution, creating a token representing a service or, or an asset along the way. And they're creating that from a tech point of view. What you're doing is you're creating a business from a community point of view. In fact, very much a borderless global community point of view. And then you know that the journey of that business is going to be enhanced by the technology, not dominated by it. And by the creation of the equivalent of a DAO, simply enhances the co-op that you're creating on a global basis. It's, it's kind of a very sensible approach to moving into this industry. You've got a vision, you've got a direction, uh, you've got a plan as far as the business goes. It's not driven on day one by tokens. It's driven by day one by creating the community. That is, uh, yeah. I think that's a really clever approach to it, Matt. Yeah, I think I think that that's been. I think a lot of people have been talking about this in the crypto space for a long time. It's sort of a technology looking for a problem. Correct. Um, and 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 I say that you know respecting that there are a lot of it really 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 interesting products and solutions that have come to market in the last couple of years. But I think uh, you know the, the the path we took over the last few years is let's go understand a problem. And let's apply the best tools to solve that problem. And, and I think part of that roadmap will include mechanisms and tools and concepts from the crypto uh, space. Yeah. But I don't, yes. you know, we're not going at this with the simple intent to design a new token. And so you've successfully also, congratulations, raised $5 million to, to um, put into moves. Um, which round is that, Matt? Uh, we, we call this a seed round. I mean, it, it's not our first round. So that means I would have called the first one a pre-seed round. I mean, like mm -hmm. a lot of people label these rounds in, in lots of different ways, but, but I think the, the, the goal would be that over the, in the next 12 or maybe 18 months, we would be raising a series A. Um, you know, at this point, it's really about product development and sort of like refining the unit economics and testing our, our customer acquisition channels. By the time you get to the Series A, it's really about growing those user acquisition channels to say, yeah. "Hey, I need I need to put ten million dollars into Google advertisement. How you know where do I get that capital?" And so, uh, mm -hmm. right now, it's it's sort of refining the 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 sort of kinks that it still exist in the product. But wow. So Matt, when you mentioned about 
Trojan horsing yourself into Greek economy. It sparked a thought, right? And going back to payment apps, and I think we've had this conversation before in the past, Gojek and, and Grab and some of the Paytms in, in Asia, they have sort of done something similar in the sense, provide all these kind of services for the vendors and the small business owners, and essentially uh, a, a different sect of that great, you know, of the Greek economy. I'd love to get your thoughts in terms of when you get into the space and go international, don't you see yourself competing with some of those entities who are rather big and, and including like Uber have tried to get in the payment space and have done a bunch of these things with tying food service. And of course they haven't been successful in some areas, but if you look at Paytm and Grab and Gojek in Asia, uh, they have done a lot, lot of that work in that space and tying up these different sort of fragments of financial services uh, for these gig workers. So just to love to get your thoughts, do you aspire to get in that space or you will when you have to uh, from a growth, uh, from a growth uh, perspective? Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's, the, and again, this really varies based on what country you're talking about and what segment of the gig economy you're talking about. Like Grab Finance is definitely something we've looked at. Uh, this is yeah. sort of the financial services arm of Grab. Uh, Uber had a massive investment called Uber Money that they actually shut down about yeah. a year ago. Um, I think in the U.S., what we're betting on is, you know, there's a couple of characteristics. So one, we're betting on the fact that gig workers do not associate themselves um, to a single brand. They're not an Uber driver. They're not a Lyft driver. They are a gig worker. Uh, If they happen to drive for Uber, that's fine, but it may be temporary. They may then go to DoorDash. They may then go to Instacart. So their attachment to uh, the marketplaces that they're providing their service to, I don't think is as strong as it might've been five years ago or so, because there, there's way more competition for this labor. There's way more options for them to sort of like spread their time across multiple services. And so I think the original premise uh, of Uber saying, hey, we're going to be the bank for our drivers, missed the fact that Uber drivers are also Lyft drivers and they're also DoorDash yeah. drivers. And, they're, yes. and, so, and, and Uber ultimately realized that when they shut down Uber money, They also shut down Uber money because providing financial services as holistically as they were planning on was going to cement this sort of employment relationship. And that was a problem for them. Uh, It went contrary to their core business. If these people became employees, then all of a sudden they had to rethink the whole economics of the business. Um, And so that's playing to our favor that none of these companies want to fully service. I think it might be a little different. In Southeast Asia, you look at a company like Grab, they have significantly larger market share. The regulations around employment law are maybe different. You know, one of the things that's challenging about what we're building is, you know, the co-op ownership side of my sort of vision is very much borderless and global, the way you put it, Derek. But the the the, the financial services component of my business is very jurisdiction specific, right? Like what I build in the U.S. can't even carry over to Canada. I can't carry over to the U.K. I can't carry over to Australia because it's different banking environments. It's different regulations. It's different sort of like there's different uh, norms in terms of how these products are designed and built. And so every time we enter into a new market, we're going to have to almost like rethink the way we package and, and, and serve financial products. Um, so that's, that's interesting. I mean, in the fintech space, it is a lot less common to see global brands. You see a lot more regional and domestic brands. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the biggest fintech companies in the U.S. don't operate in Canada. They don't operate in Europe sure. they, because the crossing borders is complicated in financial services. And so um, you know, maybe there's an aspect of Web3 that facilitates some of that, but right now we're, we're, we're restricted by sort of the banking systems that exist. So, uh, yeah. So, so what, what I hope the listeners are getting from this is that the journey into you know, global marketplaces, borderless marketplaces, 
uh, entails interface with reality, interface with, with traditional businesses and people. Uh, it's not always in a metaverse where it's seamless and digital assets are getting exchanged between each other. But the ways of doing that are manifold. And, and your abilities to bring together teams, people, countries, um, services, and have a, a base philosophy uh, that is, is the beginning of creating enormous community. And I think that then becomes the power to create the digital asset solution um, to this on the way through and then drop some of those borders that you talk about. Um, Matt, it's been really fascinating. It's, uh, I've, I've known you since early 2017. I've got to tell everyone that when, when I first met Matt, we, we had a long chat and then I went back to him later on and I said, I said, I, I want to work with you. At some time in the future, I want to work with you. And, and I came back probably two years later and said, so now's the time. Um, so I've always been impressed with your ability to understand something, see a vision and make it happen. Congratulations. And thank you again for sharing that with us to, today. And, and for people that want to get in contact with you and learn more about it, how, how would they do that, Matt? I'm most, most active on Twitter, at Matt Spoke on Twitter. Um, but they can also find me on LinkedIn and uh, yeah, those two places. But, but Twitter's where I like to have uh, heated, contentious conversations. So. Excellent. <laughs> Wonderful. That's the place to go. <laughs> that, that's right. And, and I'll say this so you know, Matt, to your point, Derek, um, when Matt was starting this journey, we talked about this and it's such a, a pleasure and it's commendable, Matt, that you've, you've seen through this. You've executed the whole thing, which took you, I would say, about two plus years. And, you, and to me, it's, it's nothing but, you know, um, it's admirable to see that level of commitment and to be able to think of something, envision it, raise the funds and execute it. So I, I, I wish you all the success and, I'm, and you know, we'd like to be part of that success at some point as well. Thank so you. congrats. Great to be here. So Matt, um, can we ask you to come back and talk on this subject maybe in a year's time? Because it'd be great to see your progress. Um, yeah, I'd love now, to. And yeah, I mean, way, I think there's... I think the progress the progress of a company like ours is is very binary. It's either we are here in a year's time or we are not. And if we're here, we're doing really really well. And if we're not, we're the ninety percent of other startups. So uh, it'll be a good measuring stick. <laughs> that's, and and fact, you know, that's... maybe because you're for for friends and family, Matt has to give us some safe notes, give us the chance yeah. to get into pre-seed before he becomes really big. Uh, we need, <laughs> we need to capitalize on that friendship. I, I think very true. Uh, and friends and family, of course, <laughs> extends to our listener base too. So <laughs> wherever our listeners oh, yeah, are, totally they're friends yeah. and family too. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, wonderful to see you, Matt, again, and uh, thank you for coming along today. Forward to seeing you next week along the way, Nitin. Yes, likewise. Bye, guys. Bye for now, everyone. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics please feel free to connect with either Nitin or myself on Nitin at portal.am or Derek at portal.am. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive and engaged. See you next week. Bye for now.